Spoken Word, half an hour of poetry and performance, your connection to Melbourne's grassroots poetry scene, the voice of those of us who have nothing but our voices. Welcome to the Spoken Word Show on 3CR Community Radio. My name is Brendan Bonsack. 3CR broadcasts from the land of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. Sovereignty was never ceded. We pay our respects to elders past, present and into the future. Our guest today is Tabani Shuma, winner of the Slamalama Ding Dong 2019 Grand Slam Prize and recently returned from San Diego, California, where he performed in the Individual World Poetry Slam, representing Melbourne. Just a note to listeners that today's show will discuss issues of mental health and addiction. If you feel you need support, Lifeline offer 24-hour advice and referral by phone on 13 11 14 or online at lifeline.org.au. Here is Tabani Schumer. The first movie. With a major plot twist I witnessed was The Sixth Sense. When we find out Bruce Willis's character was dead the whole time. That specific twist is a trick I learned to live my life by, see, to me, addiction is a haunting. A relentless search for peace by someone who's long been deceased. It's a stillborn self-image clawing for a breath of life. It's making bedmates of death's darkness, so step into my shadow. Where a needle prick pill drop a whiskey shot acted as a rusty crowbar trying to pry open my soul to feel something. To feel anything at all. Days turn to nights, turn to weeks, turn to years, searching to feel alive. So of course, I took to poetry, to hitting line after line after line after lying to myself. After battling denial, after trying to put together the scattered jigsaw fractal pieces of my mind, I'm... Trying to be honest these days. Trying to tell my story like it is, unfiltered, triple distilled, just how I like it. I mean, liked it. I'm ashamed of how much I liked it. Of finding an ecstatic sweet relief and how that mattered more than living. Mattered more than loving. And all it leaves is longing. One more hit, one more sip, just one kiss, just tonight, just forever. They say we spirits live forever. What that means is that the dying never ends, and the living is spent pretending, covering up the pooling crimson quagmire of my fatal wound, blending in as one of them who assume him. There's no way he could be consumed by phantom antics, and if he is, call it possession, a phase, an escape, anything to lessen this waking funeral truth, I buy into it too. Walking both sides of this realm, an abject detective solving my own murder, I am both Sisyphus and the boulder. At the precipice of perception, both I and the beholder, it's impossible to hold the incorporeal closer, spending days hugging wraiths. I faced my inner demons to be haunted by the ghosts of overdoses. I still hear them screaming, Tabani, call me, Tabani, hold me, Tabani, save me. I cannot save you. I'm dead too, but I don't know it. Getting clean has been a graveyard. I'm a groundskeeper frantically digging. Measuring six feet while shoveling twelve steps, I keep digging and digging and digging. My past won't stay buried, but my friends do. 
We spectres don't remember who we were before we died. I'm trying to recover that. There's no call to action, no solemn catharsis, no sympathy for the strung out. I'm just a kid with a blanket pulled to his chest talking to ghosts and I wonder if anyone looks at folks like me croaking the twisted ghastly gasp to ghouls that goes. I see dead people. Wow, that was the voice of Tabani Schumer. Welcome to the show. <laughs> Thanks. That's an incredible uh, punch in the face to start the show with. <laughs> <laughs> Hit it hard. <laughs> yeah. How long have you been clean, so to speak? It was 34 months yesterday. Because <laughs> I'm also in a 12-step fellowship, so the way they count is like 30 days, 60 days, and so on. And then after a year, it just becomes year blocks. Um, so I'm coming up on three years, but I have a really close friend who we have the same clean date. So we are always like checking it. So it's actually her that reminded me because mm -hmm. like I'm now just like waiting for the year mark. And she was like, oh, by the way, today's our day. <laughs> and I was like, oh, didn't even notice. Do you remember the moment where you decided to get help? There's two separate avenues. There's the, the intervention stage and then the actual personal decision. So I got cleaned through rehab and going to rehab was not a choice at all. Like I was, it was my family who intervened and put me there. So the first couple months I was like, I don't want to be here. I don't want to do this. I don't have a problem. But after enough time, that's when the penny kind of drops and you're like, oh, okay, I see. The moment was more realizing that a lot of the behaviors that I've been practicing throughout my life haven't been serving me. And they've kind of like been very ego based because um, one of the exercises that we do is like an inventory. Basically, you look at every decision you've ever made that is of consequence and you, you look at the underlying intention and once you kind of have a better understanding of your motives behind doing everything, that's where you can see that, okay, yeah, I was doing this from a place of fear. I was doing this, you know, to save face. I was doing this so people would like me. I was doing this for all these different reasons that aren't necessarily self-serving. What sort of methods do they use? You, you write a 60-page story <laughs> that's basically focused on dangerous situations that you got yourself into, times that you kind of put using before your family, times where using was an obsession rather than a choice. It was like a compulsive thing where you, you knew you didn't want to use, but you did anyway because you kind of saw no other way out. When, when someone's telling you that, oh, I think you have a problem or you need to like look at the way you're doing things, it's, there's a lot of resistance that comes with that. It's like, who are you to tell me how to live my life kind of thing? But when you've written it out yourself, <laughs> there's like that it kind of breaks the denial. You're like, okay, no one's telling me this. This is literally me writing out all the reasons why I kind of fit into the bracket of addict. Did that spark your entry into poetry? It sparked my re-entry. I would say I started writing maybe in primary school. Then it was more song lyrics. 
and kind of like hip hop rap lyrics. And then I didn't write for years and years. And then I I started writing again once I got clean. And it started out just as journaling. Like it wasn't following any poetic meter or anything. It was just me getting my feelings out there. Um, so then I started writing poems to just have a play with those feelings and kind of unpack them a bit more and be able to understand them more clearly for myself. And that was before I ever knew that there was like a spoken word scene and that performance poetry was a thing. I was like, oh, this is just for me to kind of have a play with writing and do something that's a creative outlet. Because when we were in rehab, we did a lot of different art therapies. So writing was always like my go-to exercise. Because you were good at it? Yes. <laughs> mm -hmm. Did you try painting? And um, I did. And I actually enjoyed it. It's something that I want to get back into. I prefer writing because it's more easily accessible for me. Like I can just pick up a pen and paper anywhere and go at it. Um, whereas painting, I kind of need a space. I need canvas. I need paints. I need, there's all these little things that you need. When you're making art in therapy, mm. do you have a sense that it's therapy or are you getting lost in the art? It's the same premise as meditation for me. It's like something to get me outside of my head. And if I'm in that creative space, I'm not really thinking about anything. You know, I'm not ruminating on the past. I'm not like worrying about the future. It's just, it brings me into the present and I'm just there in that moment. And I think that's the largest therapeutic value it has. It's just like a reminder to be present. Since performing in spoken word, when you're writing now, do you have a sense of the audience? Yes. And it's something that frustrates me because I feel like to a degree it can start to influence the reason I'm writing and kind of the style I'm writing. It's like instead of it being about the emotive expression, it's like, ooh, what are like the best lines? What's what's catchy? What's going to get a laugh? What's going to like get some clicks? What's And that's like where slam comes in like slam if i'm writing a piece for slam you know the there's that underlying intention of this is going to be judged so make it something entertaining make it something that judges will like um and i'm still like on the fence of whether it's a good thing or a bad thing i don't know maybe it's neither it's just a thing i think for me what's been working is a separation. Like I have pieces that are just for me that I won't perform. And then I have pieces that I will perform. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855 AM. Visit the 3CR website at 3cr.org.au forward slash podcast to hear the most recent recording from each show or 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming to listen live. You are listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855am or streaming from 3cr.org.au. 
In a couple of days' time, 16th of November to be precise, the stalwart literary magazine Going Down Swinging will be celebrating its 40th anniversary. That's right, who would have thought that from its humble beginnings in the late 70s as something typewritten and stapled together by Kevin Brophy and Myron Lysenko that it would become the giant that it is today? Well, to mark the occasion, GDS have created a special bumper print edition featuring writers such as Eleanor Jackson, Alan Van Nieven, Bella Lee, Tony Birch and many more, plus illustrations and comics. The book will be launched at the Brunswick Mechanics Institute at 7pm on Saturday, November the 6th, with $5 entry and copies available for purchase. The event will be Auslan interpreted and the venue is fully wheelchair accessible, including bathrooms. For more information, visit www.goingdownswinging.org.au. It should be an amazing night. This is the Spoken Word Show, and my guest today is Tabani Schumer. I once wished I was raised by wolves. Not to forsake my mother or father, but rather just to have an origin story that would warrant being a little wild. As a child, I was a tad awkward. A gangly stalk that walked with two left feet, like an unsprung spring wound tense and taut too tight to trip but still falling. My balance offset by a constant sense of insecurity, a quintessential need to not be me. See, my father, he always taught me to be more sheep than wolf, although his method was more about appearing sheathed in wool, play the role, mask with the disguise, where to the point you cease to recognize whether this guy is the real you or the social role you adopted, I stopped it to avoid the inevitable existential quandaries that for centuries have been the squandering of far greater philosophical minds than mine, for to deny my nature would be to deny the very thing that makes me human, but remember this man-cub once wished he was raised by wolves. Because younger me was a loner, with a lingering longing to join a pack or pride or herd, be one of those vainglorious birds of a feather with the simple pleasure of flocking off together. The choice to weather every storm with each other, with sisters and brothers. My mother, her methodology was a macabre mix of the meticulous and ridiculous, distorted into myth by time, I, in the dual role of Romulus and Remus, seeking augury on beaten wings, murdering my shadow self and twin to learn that Rome wasn't built in a day, instead one day at a time. And a licking is only defeat when the wounds are left unattended, my parents were splendid. And despite them, or maybe to spite them, I grew up to be a lone wolf. A pack just wasn't conducive to redefining or defining my truth. I'm finding the hunt, though, is harder. Each meal a battle for just desserts where the proof is in the putting down of anything I'm attached to. I've had to see wild and tame live in the same symbiotic polarity as night and day. Too late to trade a soul for the safe illusion of being raised by wolves. The childhood of Tabani. <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> in summary.
Where were you born? Um, I was born in Zimbabwe. Um, and I was, I was in boarding school since I was six. The majority of my memories are like school time memories and just being in boarding school because primary school was weekly boarding and then high school was three weekly boarding. So majority of the time was spent at school. Yeah, so that's like living at school, isn't it? Mm. What's it like day to day living at school? It's intense because it was an Anglican school as well. So very routine religious. It's like morning chapel, (laughs) evening chapel every day or every other day, classes regularly during the day. And it's in in Zimbabwe, there's a big sports culture. And I was never (laughs) a sporty person (laughs) still to this day. I'm not. I'm like the least athletic. I have no hand-eye coordination. Sports is not my thing. (laughs) (laughs) Are you religious now? Um, No. I understand the value of religion. And there's a lot of good to be found in religion. But I also feel like there's a lot of misunderstanding. And that kind of leads it astray. It's like when it becomes a method of control and when it becomes something that's not necessarily serving a higher purpose, but like serving an individual pursuit, that's when I feel like it can be corrupted. I feel like people corrupt religion and I feel like religion on its own and the lessons and the values on their own are so good, but then add people and goes a bit sideways (laughs) (laughs) what was it like in san diego oh it was beautiful for one because the weather was just glorious it was like beach sunshine um but the competition was unbelievable like the performance was just on a whole nother level like i'd never seen so many amazing writers and talented performers all together in one place. It actually got a bit draining at the end because it's like so much good poetry all day, every day for three straight days. And a lot of the content is like very intense. So it's just like bam, 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 nonstop. And it's really good. I feel like um, the community there, there's really good sportsmanship. Everyone is very like amicable to towards each other but at the same time it's like we know this is a competition (laughs) but we also know it's not about the competition like it's just about bringing together the artists but at the same time it's still a competition i found you there was like a distinct separation between people who'd done the particular iwips competition before and people who were new to it so the newer you were the more unsettled you were. It's like the people who had done it like multiple times. They're like, okay, we know, we know exactly how to do the competition. So there's a kind of, uh, there's a tactical way of... Yeah, definitely. And I I always have mixed feelings about slam because of it. Because it is kind of a sport, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And it can, there can be a tactical element. So it becomes not necessarily a measure of poetry performance but it's it's more a measure of 
who's best at reading human behavior and who can see, okay, what poems will contrast my competitors' poems, what will kind of resonate with the audience and the judges. Because the judges are always just randomly picked people from the audience. And a lot of the time, there'll be people who've never seen performance poetry before, and they can be appealed to with emotive content. <laughs> That's a communication skill, though, yeah, isn't it? definitely. Just being able to read your audience. Yeah. It's an almost scary power, <laughs> if you think about it. It's like if you, if you just know how to speak to people, you can elicit any kind of response from them, really. In just, and I think that's that's really the power of words, well delivered words that speak to the right parts of people, can make you laugh or cry in an instant, can bring you to rage, can can change your emotional state, which could change how you behave and how you vote. Yeah, and how you vote, <laughs> how you interact, how you protest, so, everything. <laughs> in studying journalism, have you noticed? That that is a, a skill that, that journalists use? Definitely. And it's always, even in our course, we're taught to write stories with a local angle. Like everything has to be relatable to someone in Melbourne, which I I never thought of that as like a an intentional, deliberate move, something just so simple. It's like, however you're taking the story, it could be any story, but your wording makes it relatable to the local audience. A good example that comes to mind is like whenever there's, say, a plane crash internationally, the first thing to ask is like, were any Australians on board? <laughs> um, how is this related? Like, did the flight go through Australia? It's like anything that can link it back to Australia that's what you're leading with. It's like, oh, two Australians were on this flight that went down in another country. And it's something so subtle, but it's a big impact. And that can change whether readers will tune in or not. We're inundated with more information than ever. So now it's harder to kind of filter through. So you, so you need something to grab people's attention. Yeah. And even that is kind of like one of those communicative tools lead with the most punchy thing. And it's, yeah, it's been interesting because studying journalism while I've been writing poetry has influenced the way that I write. I'm more cautious in word count. It's like, I know brevity is key. And I'm like, okay, what, what's the punchiest part of this poem? Lead with that. And that's also an effective slam technique it's like if you can get the audience in like the first three lines of your poem it almost doesn't matter what you say after that it's like as soon as they're hooked <laughs> you have them and that's it the rest is just carrying them through to the end and then does the end have to be punchy as well punchy as well yeah so if i'm writing a piece specifically for slam that's those are my main focuses is like the beginning and the end what happens in the middle doesn't really matter but punchy start punchy end and that always works 
<laughs> Do you think people forget the middle? Yes, definitely. And I say this because, like I said, a lot of my pieces are very personal and they're like about me, the personal narratives. And I've, I've had people in like the spoken word community who I'll tell them that like I'm an addict in recovery and they're like, oh, I never knew that about you. And I'm like, well, what do you mean? I've literally done like 10 poems <laughs> about it. Did you not hear any of the poems? <laughs> and I think in a slam specifically, because you're hearing what, 10 to 12 different poets. It's like, like I said, it's a lot to take in. So the middle definitely can get lost. You've had a crash career of spoken <laughs> word. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> you've uh, you've tumbled a lot of stuff into <laughs> essentially one year. Yeah, uh, it's been it's been so good. Such a crazy ride. It's always very surreal. Um, like when I did the GoFundMe to go to San Diego, I was like, "Wow, people actually believe in me." What? I don't. <laughs> There's like imposter syndrome, very hard. <laughs> imposter syndrome, I hear that a lot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what does that mean to you? To me, it's largely about being my own worst critic. I, I feel like I have no objectivity when it comes to myself. And I always think that anything I do is not as good as kind of the appreciation it's receiving and the like positive feedback it gets. I'm like, yeah, mm, not as good as you think it is. Um, and it's kind of just waiting insecurely for the day I'll be exposed as a fraud. <laughs> um, is that something you've had all your life in other parts of your life? Not to the degree. I feel like in poetry, it's to a larger degree because this is the first thing that I've done that's kind of performative the more people who are watching the more of an imposter I feel like and the more people that are giving positive feedback so yeah it's and I guess that kind of correlates it's like the more the more people watch the more feedback you get so it's like a greater pool of feedback than I've gotten with anything that I've done do you ever feel like you need to switch off from people's comments? Yes and no at the same time because I I thrive off the positive feedback but like one negative comment will just derail my whole day <laughs> and I could have 10 people saying that they really liked a piece I did and they really appreciated it but if one person's like it was okay I'm just like that's all I care and anyone to say anything good after that completely goes over my head if I find that I'm getting too caught up in the audience response that's when I'll like take a break and be like I need to just write for me because it can be so exhausting it's like and I feel like a lot of the pieces that I write are very personal and it's like sharing a part of myself so it, I find it exhausting to like be constantly sharing that much of myself. Do you have a fear just before you perform it in front of an audience? Is there a, is there a fear? Yes, always. And I feel like that's, that's the one 
thing that's remained constant because I feel like the the way I perform and even my writing style in the past year has changed but the fear that's the one constant <laughs> like from my first performance to my last performance um the level of fear has always been the same <laughs> the nerves are always the same it's it never it never changes and which is good it doesn't get worse but it doesn't get better it's just <laughs> it's a constant level exactly after you've finished the poem does the fear dissipate or does it increase it usually dissipates and i guess it also depends on the poem cuz some poems i feel are more like they require a lot more of me to deliver so if it's a heavier piece then i will feel more drained after it but if it's like a light more comedic piece then i actually feel like more invigorated after it's like woo that was fun <laughs> it's like so when you're putting together a uh, set for a feature mm. do you try and curate a mixture of yes and i try i try to always end on a lighter note so that i can leave feeling like okay and um start heavy <laughs> like we did here yeah, yes. like <laughs> <laughs> um so yeah rather than um start light and build up i'm like start heavy and then we build down boxed in i exist as schrodinger's poet both dead and alive decaying to existential dread while vibrant with a lust for life perpetually uncertain categorically undefined to see life in terms of certainty fits secure as the safe lens cause begets subsequent effect logically it appears to make sense but matter is a matter of some debate is malleable and like most of quantum theory a series of head fucking thought experiments a multiverse of equally irritatingly unsolvable iterations morphing space and time which differs from space time which is also known as the time space continuum and if i haven't lost you yet in lieu of whovian time travel let's track back to the box four walls and a floor the fourth wall all but removed to imbue a better view of you as me no that can't be right that's more quantum entanglement what i am is quantum superposition which to the layman simply states you don't know what it is until you look at it and in the moment before you do it exists as everything but tabani you ask you're a particle why are you acting like a wave how could you possibly exist in all possible configurations simultaneously understandably it's difficult to understand attempts to define my state as this or that lack refinement the blade is double edged inverted distorted disintegrating serrated and just doesn't cut it but the giga counter continues set off anyway and the poison dispersed in the unfortunate form of generalized toxicity making it hard to believe in theories that defy the subatomic truths we thought we knew and all to prove the point that posits observation creates certainty the only way to know for sure is to open the box but once you do you collapse reality 
Nothing is or isn't, nothing was or will be, and we'll see what happens when it happens, if it happens, and as happenstance would have it, we're pretty bad at it. But that's okay. It's technically what quantum theory is for. A casual reminder of the senselessness of sense. We are merely chaotic atoms held in electronic suspense. Henceforth, let me be known as nothing. Which is to say, I am everything. Contently living and deceased in an experimental box of infinite possibility. This is the Spoken Word Show on 3CR Community Radio, 855am or streaming from 3cr.org.au. My name is Brendan Bonsack, and my guest today is Tabani Schumer. Whenever I'm writing a poem that's heavily drawn on content like that, I do the research behind the poem. And that's sometimes even more fun than writing the poem, because it's like, oh, I just learned a whole bunch of things about quantum theory that I'll never use outside of this poem. (laughs) (laughs) It's good to have a reason, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah, exactly, yeah. It's it makes it fun. And I guess I'm just I'm one of those people that just likes to read anything and just on a variety of subjects that I will never have any practical use for. Um, so putting them in poems is a nice way to make them useful. It's like I have meaningless knowledge, but that you know of. Yeah. <laughs> you mentioned Doctor Who in there. Are you a big Who fan? Yes. <laughs> Love Doctor Who. And I think that's probably a lot of my science-related poems are very much drawn from Doctor Who. It's a lot of time travel and quantum theory. And yeah, definitely a big fan. Why do you think people are so fascinated with time travel? Two things. It's either wanting to change the past or wanting to see the future. So I think it's, yeah, it falls into like two categories of people. It's the people that have moments that they would wish they could change and the people who are just curious about what the infinite possibilities are. Um, But I, I always remember like reading the this quote, I don't know who it's by, that it talks about whenever there's time travel, there's always that idea that you shouldn't make even the smallest of changes because that'll have a ripple effect on the future. But nobody considers that in the present. It's like a small change in the now can affect your future. And it's like people only conceive of that power when time travel is concerned. But we're in the present now. Do something small and... It could change your future, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for coming along today. Thank you for having me. It's been great. You've been listening to Spoken Word on 3CR Community Radio. Tune in every week on Thursday at 9am or listen to our podcasts from 3cr.org.au forward slash spoken dash word. For information on Spoken Word events in this city and surrounds, visit www.melbournespokenword.com. And whilst you're there, grab a ticket to the 2019 MSW Prize being held at the Cullingwood Town Hall this year and featuring 25 poets handpicked by event conveners throughout the community. December the 6th is the date to note down. My name is Brendan Bonsack. Thanks for listening and stay tuned for Arts Express. (laughs) 